are here. In the 11FS offices in WeWork Allgate, London, for episode 48 of Blockchain Insider. This weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto meets institutions. I'm finally back in the hot seat after what feels like an eternity, and today we bring you the US launches a criminal probe into Bitcoin, IHS market have a loan tokenization plan, and China Mao impersonator at a blockchain conference causes an absolute furore. I'm not alone today, however. Uh, I'm joined by my wonderful co-host, Sarah Feenan. How are you? Hi, I'm good, thank you. Welcome back, Simon. Oh, good to be back. It did feel like a long, long time I was away. Um, but I'm not the only tailor in town today. No relation, but we do have the CoinFloor CMO, Tina Baker-Taylor. How are you? I'm good, Simon. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being on the show. Uh, we're glad to have you. Uh, before we get started, just a quick word about our sponsor. Today's episode of Blockchain Insider is brought to you by Corda. Corda is an open source blockchain platform that allows businesses to transact directly in strict privacy. Using smart contracts, Corda enables complex transactions using real assets and legally binding agreements without the need of a trusted intermediary or a Colin G. Platt. Uh, Corda is the result of a collaborative effort led by R3 and over 200 of the world's largest banks and tech partners. Ready to build on today, the financial community is deploying Corda to manage their agreements and move assets globally. Now, you can transform your business ecosystem with a platform selected by by the world's largest institutions to build their future on. Go to corda.net to learn more. And if you heard last week's show, Richard Brown read that, which was really interesting because I know these are his words um, with how pedantic he is. We love you, Richard. It was great to have you on the show. All right, but we've got to get on with the news. All right, first story in the news comes from Bloomberg, and this is about the US launching a criminal probe into Bitcoin price manipulation. Ooh, scary stuff. So this comes from the Justice Department, who have looking into whether traders are manipulating the price of Bitcoin and other digital currencies, focused on practices that can influence prices such as spoofing, flooding the market with fake orders to trick other traders into buying or selling. Any thoughts on this one, Tina? Well... No shit, Sherlock. <laughs> no shit, Sherlock, really. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, we have been saying this for some time. I think anytime you uh, have an illiquid spot market and couple that with cash settled futures, where the price is determined by a spot index, you're you're opening yourself up to issues. And as we see, you know, the spot price start to crash when futures contracts start to settle. It's it doesn't take a rocket scientist to identify that something's going on there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we I think we've sort of speculated about this on the show before. And when you have index prices that are based on orders and not actual trades, then it's quite easy to manipulate as long as you so have it's interesting cash to there. me that something as fundamental as an index price it can be so influential on the market like that actually this infrastructure is so immature that some of the major institutions that are in this space and some of the major otc desks are using indices provided by you know, orders they're not yeah. this isn't a settled by the actual tra- exchanges that stand to benefit or or not yeah, yeah. and yeah. so uh, this is why in financial markets we've always had a separation of these roles of who provides the index versus who manages the order book versus who custodies the asset in the world of crypto all three of those can come from the same institution yeah. effectively yeah. 
Yeah. And exchanges, all exchanges are at risk of spoofing and wash trading. Absolutely. But there are definitely steps that can be taken. Um, so at CoinFloor, we're implementing trade surveillance technology to identify this activity. And when we identify it, we stop it. But again, as any time you put measures in place, people will come up with new and creative ways to manipulate the system. But it becomes a game of cat and mouse at that point, which it needs to be, right? If the institutions in the space can demonstrate and partner with law enforcement, Enforcement and others around, well, this is the steps we're taking in terms of surveillance, detection Absolutely. and prevention, and can collaborate in terms of your know, data sharing, information sharing. I think it creates a fair market. And actually, we, I think we do want fair markets broadly. The, the laissez-faire, you know, kind of Wild West does actually end up damaging more people than it protects. There are some people who, who are all for that, I'm sure. But uh, I think in, in aggregate, if there are rules that we can put together that prevent these unfair practices, then let's try and put, get those together. I think it's hard to not support. We did see, predict that um, a physically settled Bitcoin future would potentially mitigate a lot of these problems. You know, it reduces the uh, availability of price leverage or market manipulation because you're either delivered or being delivered uh, the, the asset itself, whatever the underlying asset is. So, you know, again, going back to the, the cash index price, um, I think that just as a mechanism is, is broken for a number of reasons. And uh, we are seeing that, I think there was a story where Bloomberg a couple of weeks ago were working with Mike Novogratz around creating a new index. Uh, and I've seen a number of people working with the uh, OTC desks to create an index off actual uh, kind of confirmed orders and well, confirmed transaction prices yeah. to try and get more certainty into some of the some of those prices. Yeah. That are, that Transactions are and open interest are not the same thing. Oh, no, <laughs> no. Very, very different. Alrighty, next story comes from Coindesk. IHS Market has a plan to tokenize the $1 trillion dollar loan market. So uh, for those unfamiliar, um, if you work in cap markets, you've definitely heard of IHS market. They're an infrastructure giant. They're developing a new blockchain-based system to handle the payments leg of a syndicated loan trade and eventually a wide range of financial transactions. Uh, they're actually already well entrenched in terms of syndicated loan solutions. Um, I had a look at their website and if you look at their uh, loan settlement product that they already offer, they already do automated affirmation, confirmation and matching. But the thing that they weren't able to do was settlement. So they, I could get involved in a syndicated loan. Basically, a lot of us are syndicating this loan. It, it's exactly what it says on the tin. And traditionally, when people talked about the syndicated loan market being something that blockchain or DLT would really help with, said, oh, well, this is terrible that it takes 30 days for a syndicated loan. But actually, if you're going to get loads of institution to participate in a loan syndication, maybe you want that period of time for the transaction to be available. But this is a system that they're developing called Stax, S-T-A-X, designed to eliminate the last mile of wire transfers where each transaction has its own wire. Every single transaction has its own wire. If successful stacks would cut out the complexity and workload around cash reconciliation between parties in a syndicated loan, which can involve as many as 30 different banks. So according to Oleski, who's from uh, IHS Markets, an actual smart contract would decide when the trade is ready to close, perform the cash settlement, and so the system does 
uh, doesn't exactly shorten the trade life cycle, but it can really make reduce time, reduce effort, and reduce work, um, and reduce cost for a lot involved. And if you can settle trades 24-7, you eliminate the need for sort of having all of this really nice automated process around confirmation and matching, followed by a really manual process where people are trying to figure out what 30 payments do I need to make to 30 different banks. You can see how that very easily becomes a spider's web. Mm. So you've done a lot in the DLT space. Anything? Any thoughts on this? It looks to me like it's it's sort of ripple, but with a sort of very clear use case. Yeah, I like I like the idea. I mean, I'd, I'd quite like to see what happens outside of the smart contract because that's obviously not where the settlement happens. But yeah. we need a little bit more detail on that, I think. Yeah, it was quite a high level um, article here yeah. from from IHS Market, wasn't it? But um, obviously, we know Finastra with their Loan IQ product are looking at uh, how can they do manage a lot of the life cycle of syndicate loans all the way through to settlement all the way up from from the beginning from the affirmation and confirmations and all the way through and i think this straight through process stuff is really really not very sexy on the face of it but actually really really compelling if you're looking at a PL from an investment bank's perspective it can make a real difference to middle and back office and it could also bring a lot of transparency to the underlying settlement and, and where these assets are held which in financial markets can be really challenging well just judging by the number of settlement projects that are being undertaken at the moment so you have the australia stock exchange project that's centered around settlement the utility settlement coin by central banks that's basically trying to solve settlement. So, you know, settlement is clearly it's a big issue. Something I mean, that, yeah, that is an issue. It's a final mile in reducing risk. Until things settle, then you have that counterparty risk open. Absolutely. And the way we settle using a SWIFT transaction is kind of challenging because when I go to make a SWIFT transaction, I don't know how much it's going to cost. I don't know when it's going to get there and I don't know what route it's going to take. So if I'm settling, I don't know, a, a multi-billion dollar loan uh, via SWIFT, then I'm spraying and praying like, please get there. I don't know when you're going to get there. I don't know how you're going to get there. And so Sometimes the transaction doesn't get there. Like some swift transactions get lost. And if you have 30 different banks, then that's a huge amount of intertwined risk there, yeah. Whereas actually, if I have one smart contract managing where all the settlements go that are linked to the actual trade itself, you can see how this can make a real difference. All right, next story comes from Coindesk again. BitGo are building their own digital asset custodian. The startup said on Thursday that it was seeking a charter to build the BitGo Trust, a new regulated qualified custodian that will be built specifically for digital assets. And they've uh, they've got a quote here where they said, we spent a lot of time over the course of this working with customers because ultimately that's who we're going to be serving and realized they would be best served by a custodian who is entirely focused on their assets. So our focus has been to create a fully qualified independent digital custodian and of course they were going to buy kingdom trust and it looks like they're now not going to so interesting developments here go ahead sarah no no you go i was going to say by qualified do they mean regulated yeah so that's they they did say they were building a new regulated qualified custodian but getting uh, regulated as a custodian is is no easy no easy feat i mean that's a that's a significant journey yeah i don't know anyone that that has specifically for crypto been regulated as a custodian yet. No, no I mean, there are people declaring their positions, yeah. but I don't think anybody's... Uh, well, we did see Nomura and Ledger have got together, but obviously Nomura are a custodian. <laughs> That's, it's easier yeah. for them. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, anybody that knows me knows that I, I talk about institutional money coming into crypto as being pretty paramount to uh, crypto being able to achieve 
growth and ultimately, you know, its intended uh, promise. So, you know, institutional money brings volume, volume brings price stability. And um, institutions have, you know, different regulatory and counterparty risk requirements than, you know, individual investors do. So being able to securely store assets is, you know, a primary, primary concern for them. Um, when I heard that Bico was going to partner with Kingdom, I was really encouraged to see a JV product. So I think we've got now custodian banks or people that are very skilled at securing um, or at providing custody in the traditional finance setting. And we have, uh, on the other side of that, the crypto technologists that understand the complexity because they're not the same thing. So, you know, the institutional custodians provide the, the market trust. And I think the crypto technologists provide the know-how. So, you know, a JV opportunities seem like, you know, a match made in heaven for me. So I was a little disappointed to see that this wasn't going to happen, but still encouraged that people are focusing on custody because it's a, it's a big problem. Well, it's huge. If you're a pension fund, you want to see that the people custodying, in, in other words, holding your asset, are different to the people that are transacting the asset. You want to see that separation of the asset manager and the asset custodian. And it's normal those counterparties on either side of a transaction would have their own custodians. That's, uh, again, that, that we were talking in the first story about the need for the separation of who does what in, in order to reduce the chances of market manipulation. And so you can see why the market has intermediaries in it. A lot of the initial thesis was we need to get rid of intermediaries, but actually what we're really seeing is the emergence of a new asset class with a need to build this this kind of capability that we had before. But at the same time, maybe it doesn't have to look like it did before because custody for non-dematerialized or listed market instruments uh, for uh, the alternative assets, AIFMD in Europe, so your real estate, your loan origination, all that kind of stuff, art, wine, all of those assets are actually very manual to, to have funds administration around and all of that kind of stuff. It's really, really painful and slow. And and it's really untransparent about where your funds are being managed and what's happening and what's causing the fees. And so big pension funds don't know why they're paying the fees they are. They don't know who they're paying. It's it's all very opaque. If we're introducing custody into this space, we're potentially introducing transparency of, is my pension fund that I'm holding, holding some crypto? What crypto is it holding? How's it being held? And how's that crypto being used? Which I think is really important to investors. You know, I don't. A lot of people are investing for purpose these days and that transparency in markets shows shows real potential well and i think source of funds comes into this too right so when you're looking at an institutional uh requirement around you know kyc aml counterterrorism financing you need to be sure the source of those funds yeah. and some uh people are able to uh demonstrate we, we call it provable solvency so mm -hmm. if you go into our exchange you can see all the assets we hold in the blockchain, anonymized, obviously, but all the way back from the inception of our exchange. So it's very, very transparent. But you're also trusting that we've done our due diligence to ensure that everyone we've onboarded and all of the funds that we've taken in have been scrutinized. You know, I, I feel very confident that they have. But if you're an institutional player, that that's not an option for you to, to be, you know, 90% confident, you're going to be on the hook for 100% confidence of those source of funds.
Completely. And I think there's some interesting quirks about the nature of crypto assets and specifically blockchains that have the potential to fork uh, and then potential for replay attacks and other things that we've seen when these asset classes have or, or these crypto assets have forked in the past. Um, we saw it famously with Ethereum and Ethereum Classic, the, the replay attacks and, and then the, the need for the protections that were put in place by a number of organizations to prevent that. Custodians may find themselves on the front line and traditional institutions that do custody, I think, have have a lot to pick up and potentially they already understand or may want to understand more about how they'd go into that space and how they do so with a structure around them whereby they're not just operating without a mandate in the wild west of, of crypto assets but with you know kind of solid rules regulations and standards and absolutely so All right, next story. Yahoo Finance, this one comes from. In the Philippines, banks are to pilot an Ethereum-based blockchain for retail payments in a move to further financial inclusion. Some 35 million unbanked Filipinos uh, into the financial system. Union Bank of the Philippines uh, have picked five rural banks for a blockchain pilot that will test real-time cheaper retail payments. Tina, do you want to tell us a bit more about this one? Well, it strikes me a little bit around how mobile was going to solve some of these peer-to-peer payments, right, in these remote locations. So, you know, cryptocurrencies, the initial promise of cryptocurrencies, what they were designed to offer um, what were peer-to-peer transactions. You know, they were going to be faster, they were going to be cheaper. So, you know, crypto and financial inclusion is really a match made in heaven in theory. You know, I would like to see more use cases solving this problem. I do think it's a it's a natural fit. Um, but if you look at mobile, you know, one of the big challenges um, that faced mobile payments was interoperability between mobile wallets and mobile phone providers, uh, contract providers. Well, the classic is M-Pesa in Kenya. Um, M-Pesa did really well because they had 80% market share. Um, but it, it became like the Galapagos of fintech. In one jurisdiction. Because it, w- it that was one country where that was the yeah. case. But now there's good work by the Gates Foundation with their project Mojaloop. And Mojaloop is a set of standards where the telcos are going to use, actually, I think it's the Interledger protocol, to connect together a lo- bunch of telcos and create that. This is an interesting uh, alternative direction, Sarah. They're, they're, they're doing something whereby it's institution to institution and island to island. Yeah, they're calling it eye to eye. So it's island to island, institution to institution and individual to individual, which Clever. they all start with I. That should be eye to eye cubed. <laughs> yeah, they've missed the trick there, haven't they? So yeah, as, as we've discussed, it's to connect rural banks to the country's main financial network. Um, it's, it's really important from a kind of inclusion perspective and banking the unbanked, it's it's actually based on uh, Consensus's Kaleido, which is their software client. Uh, and actually, when we've been speaking about interoperability, we've been working Consensus and ourselves at Clearmatic and a few, Clearmatic's a few others um, to actually kind of to create standards around software clients. And we think that interoperability is a huge thing for adoption. Yeah. Um, in I mean, this it's space. critical. Uh, that interoperability and performance appear to be the two main things in the Ethereum community at the moment. If you're going to have uh, public permissionless blockchains and yeah, or uh, public point, permissionless right? blockchains that can uh, have, operate in, in a virtual private network in some way, uh, in, a, in a permissioned on permissionless way, then you're still going to need both of those things. You're going to need the performance and you're going to need kind of the interoperability. And it's good to see drives towards making that happen. But then the third thing you need is real use cases and real users. I mean, yeah. I think the dirty secret of most kind of smart contract based platforms is nobody's using them. I mean, even crypto kitties have 
650 users per month or something. It, I mean, it's, it's if this was a fintech, we'd be we we wouldn't have heard of it. Uh, but the, it gets a lot of headlines because it's blockchain. Um, some of that traditional sort of startup mentality of okay, but now I have to really solve a problem for people. Great that you've got this partnership, but the thing that they did really well with Mpesa in Kenya when we speak to uh, some of the early software engineers um, on fintech insider, our sister podcast, they tell us that look that for a couple of years they were trying to pivot to figure out what's the underlying problem here they knew that carrying cash was dangerous in kenya they knew a lot of people had to travel for a couple of hours with cash on them and that was a real problem but they didn't understand the cultural uh, norms of how money was held and who was holding it and once they understood that they knew okay so there are these agents but these agents have these cultural norms and if we get them using their phone and if we can get them sending airtime then maybe we start to get somewhere. So there's got to be a lot more proposition alongside the technology. When uh, MasterCard started to look at financial inclusion, um, Anne Carnes a few years ago gave this talk. It might have been at Money 2020, can't remember where. And uh, in her, she was describing an experience of spending, you know, a week in Africa and really transacting with the community and finding out how predominantly women in this case um, were securing and storing and spending their money. And, you know, she commented the same that until you really understand the daily life of a person and, and what is required for them to kind of transact some of those practical things don't get noticed until adoption is low until adoption's low and we've seen this with banks for so long which is they they launch a product that nobody uses um and getting it out was the key thing uh, whereas with uh, what we're seeing now is the real focus on the job to be done what is the underlying thing it's like how do i get home safely how do i make and if you solve that underlying emotional need and you build a proposition around that it's a lot stronger and uh, this is why i got a lot of time for richard burton at balance um he's got the balance wallet uh, and he's probably the most kind of user focused person uh, in terms of product that i've really seen i may be missing it and there may be other good ones out there but in terms of that usable consumer product i think there's still a long way to go that said, I mean, it does talk a lot about the five banks that are out of reach of the financial system in the country, but it doesn't really talk much about the, the users of those banks or the people that are still yet not even connected to the banks. So um, if banks are the final users, then cool, but without the people, banks wouldn't exist. Well, hopefully, because this looks like such a targeted project, right? So we're talking about, you know, a couple of key banks and a couple islands that maybe that, that targeted focus They'll, they'll do the background work and they'll spend the time on the ground to figure out how to actually get those people transacting. Because a lot of times it's just education. Until people understand it, they're not going to use yeah, it. Yeah, for sure. I think John Lilich reached out to me on LinkedIn and said sort of he's really hopeful behind this project because it's going to hopefully make a real difference to people's lives. And I know consensus have a lot of uh, very smart people, and I'm sure they've already thought of this stuff, but it's just not obvious from press releases a lot of the time. All right, next story comes from Cointelegraph. GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, and blockchain. Is the new EU data protection regulation a threat or an incentive. So for those who aren't familiar, the General Data Protection Regulation was first proposed by the European Commission in 2012 with an initial focus on cloud services and social networks and at a time when blockchain wasn't really a word. And I think it was kind of really well intended. It was, I, I should have informed consent over how my data is used. There was a lot of signing up for a game and then my data was being sold. Or if I'm just going in, uh, kind of using a social network, they would go on an on would sell my data in all kinds of different ways 
culminating in the Cambridge Analytica scandal. So in a way, GDPR, when it was uh, intended and built in 2012, was quite prescient in in the problem it was trying to solve. I think there's uh, some interesting challenges in the legislation that then got written and kind of how this was implemented and brought to life. But uh, there's a definite discussion about whether a blockchain could ever be compliant with GDPR, because one of the key tenets is I must be able to prove that I have physically deleted any of your data and prove that it is no longer there on any of my hardware, software, or servers at all. Small problem for a blockchain. Oh, it's a small problem for anyone, really, isn't it? There's there's no way, as you were saying earlier, there's no way that you can actually delete data. You just move it back into the queue effectively to be overwritten at some yeah. point. So, you know, blockchains are by their very nature borderless. So this is European regulation. And if the data is by definition stored in the US or Asia or anywhere else, then it's not GDPR compliant anyway i think if anyone can sit there safely and say that they are now gdpr compliant give me a call you probably know my phone number <laughs> uh, so it's really interesting it's that out there somewhere the, the way this has actually manifested itself is every time i go to a website they give me like an agree here box and people are just terms and conditioning their way out of this yeah. and, and so yeah. twitter did this really well they, so they sort of brought me into like a landing page and they said here are all of your specific opt-in and opt-outs and the first thing they showed me was like opt-out 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 opt-in to this and they were all default ticks but i had the option to untick them the first thing they did was was show me that most of them it's an agree page and then i've got a more options button and then on the next page i've got to see the more options button and try and find all of the ways in which my data is used and then i can opt out and many others don't even give me that it's just like here's my agree page or you don't use our service yeah which is absolutely not in the spirit of the law anyway because you're meant to have explicit and informed consent and opt in not out So I I think part of the problem is that people have been left to their own devices to interpret a law. And some of these people, they're not tech companies, they're not law companies. They don't really know what they're doing. Well, a lot of companies have uh, hired a very big auditor who has then come in and said, well, here's the checkbox process that you need to put in because we're auditors and we're going to audit you and here's your audit. And it's like... They're literally checking a box on checking a box. And it's not the spirit of what was intended in 2012, which I think is eminently sensible. And actually, a lot of the blockchain community would get behind, which is I should be empowered to be in control of my own data. 100%. And so blockchain could, in theory, some of the projects out there like Ocean Protocol and Basic Attention Token and Brave, the browser, are really at the cutting edge of how can one manage their own data online and how can the advertising market really be changed. And actually, that to me is arguably the most exciting thing in the whole blockchain and dlt space is the future market around data and advertising and tokens when those three things come together i think it could be really compelling but i was having this argument with a room full of lawyers in germany which was always fun uh, where i was saying gdpr is a stupid stupid law as written because it, yeah as you were saying sarah it's not physically possible to delete data this is why you see on mr robot and other tv shows when they're trying to destroy data they actually destroy the physical hard hardware they destroy the hard drives because when i try to delete something on my laptop the operating system tells the hard drive uh, well tells uh, it tells itself essentially forget where that file was and then it does it forgets where the file was but it's still sitting there i can still retrieve it forensics you could still go and find that underlying uh, file so gdpr means that I can't use hard drives. GDPR means that most banks are non-compliant because all banks, by law, must retain information for seven years. How much information is stored on magnetic tape? And how much of that magnetic tape could somebody know 
ah, actually, this is the data about um, Tina and Sarah from four years ago. It's stored on this magnetic tape in this area in Coventry. Like, it's unrealistic, but well-intended. What I'm most struck by with the GDPR thing is that billions of dollars. So this article is talking about, you know, billions of dollars that are spent by companies to ensure that they are, quote, GDPR compliant by the deadline. Spent with whom? Well. For what? Yeah, the GDPR experts. And who wrote the GDPR rules, I wonder? GDPR experts. Do you think this is all one giant <laughs> stitch up by accountancy <laughs> firms? It kind of reminds me of the bit license in New York. Yeah. I'm going to create this license and then I'm going to leave and I'm going to create a company that's going to help people get the bit license. Um, very similar. But um, wouldn't it be amazing if we spent those billions of dollars trying to actually solve the problem of how we're holding people's data and actually giving me control of my data so that I can attest to my data for a variety of reasons, not for nothing, but the Equifax scandal is another example of how data, my data is being stolen or misused or replicated without my knowledge. There's some really interesting projects like um, Tokenize it, Simon. Sovereign and Tradle and uh, Civic and many others out there that are attempting to do exactly this. And, yeah. and uh, you know, if you've not heard of those, do go check them out because I think they're really interesting and they are getting some traction with some governmental institutions and some some large corporates. I mean, I think the Sovereign Foundation have partnered with IBM of all people. So there's a lot to, that could be done. And let's hope that we see technology as, as being an enabler to a brighter future rather than being the problem. So cheap plug whilst we're here. Plug, 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 plug. Speaking of GDPR, on Fintech Insider episode 220, we dig deep into that new regulation and what it means for the future of personal data. Uh, if you're wondering what your digital twin is up to, download that podcast and listen to our industry experts and the dulcet tones of one Ryan Garner, an assistant producer, Petra, uh, who tells some stories. All right. Uh, next story comes from Bitcoinist.com. High risk vulnerabilities have been found in the EOS network. Uh, poor EOS. Uh, EOS uh, poor EOS and their $4 billion worth of tokens. I know. Uh, but so if then you had an this was coming, it would have been a great short trade. Yeah, true. Um, mainnet launch uh, is now uncertain. So a Chinese cybersecurity mogul, 360 total security, which is like comprehensiveness in a title, isn't it? Uh, has identified a series of epic, in quotes, security vulnerabilities in the EOS network. In a potential attack, the wrongdoer has the capability to publish a smart contract which contains malicious code. The supernode of the EOS network will supposedly execute said malicious contract and generate a security hole. And what's really interesting is if you had check out their Git repos, uh, Vitalik's actually making comments on a lot of this stuff, sort of trying to help them almost. I can't help but think that the guy's playing 4D chess. Like, he's that's really something. Uh, but EOS, of course, is designed very different to a lot of blockchains. Instead of uh, having uh, like um, Bitcoin and Ethereum does, they've got the proof of work miners that anybody could do. They elect 21 master nodes and these master nodes p perform very differently, which in theory gives EOS much uh, much faster throughput. Um, but there's a lot of uh, criticisms about the distributed proof of stake uh, kind of way of doing things. Uh, I feel like with EOS, there's a lot of, oh, yeah, and, and a number of things. One of this is, oh, yeah, you can put malicious code into all of the nodes, obviously. If everyone's running the same software and it's malicious, duh. I'm not saying this, but other people have blamed EOS for um, the crash in ETH recently, in Ether, because it was all held in Ether and then they had to take it out somehow. Well, oh, yeah. I mean, obviously, that was going to happen, wasn't it? And uh, <laughs> it just seems like a lot of... Um, if someone's playing 4D chess, then cool, but not, not many people are thinking more than one step ahead. 
Yeah, EOS has drawn a lot of criticism as well um, over the time. But what I'm hearing when I speak to, say, Bob Summerwell and, and several others is like, there's some interesting ideas here, uh, without question. And whilst they've raised $4 billion for a token that described as absolutely useless and worth nothing, uh, they've also... Or uh, absolutely everything, if you're Brock Pierce. Yeah, well, that too. It's one of, one but, of the But other. also recognized as revenue to the EOS company, to Block.1. Some interesting, challenging things there. They've also definitely started to ship code and have GitHub commits. So on some level, you can see some really interesting development. And the project is early. I think the the challenge with raising so much money is you also raise expectations. Well, I think what we're waiting for now is to see how EOS responds to this, right? And what they do. And if we compare it with the the recent issue with IOTA. (laughs) So IOTA, you know, on the surface said, you know, attempted to do the right thing by requesting that their token be audited. And then when they got results that they didn't really like, they were quite defensive and a little retaliatory um, towards said auditors, right? Instead of acknowledging the issue and, and resolving them. And I think this brings into account maybe some maturity in the market that we're that we're starting to see emerge. The whole concept of peer review is, you know, standard practice in any scientific community, right? So if you're opening yourself up to that kind of review, then, you know, you need to be prepared to address the consequences. Now, this wasn't peer review, right? This was a a friendly hack, but uh, maybe not so friendly. But, you know, I hope that EOS takes this uh, on board and resolves the security holes. I mean, I personally think it has a lot of potential. I'd like to see it succeed really bad timing for them obviously you know just days ahead of the launch of the token so challenging times for them Alrighty, next story coindesk.com a startup behind zk stocks um, technology to seek cryptocurrencies as customers so rather than launching a new cryptocurrency founders uh, eli ben sasson and uh, alessandro chizea and several other guys are going to go in the corporate route offering their novel technology to actual blockchains in exchange for their native assets, uh, or what the team calls tech for tokens. I like the tech for tokens. Yeah, we will build tech, we'll code for tokens. Sure. Seeing like a homeless guy holding that that picture up, a classic meme. So the founder says their technology is unique because it's the only one out there right now that allows a true exponential speed up a verification of arbitrary computations with no setup assumptions and no keys to be distributed in advance. And this is one of the big criticisms of Zcash and anything that uses ZK Snarks, which is if I want zero knowledge proof, in other words, if I want to prove something without seeing the underlying data, i.e. I know that this person is over 18, but I haven't seen their date of birth, is a classic example, then in order to set that up, some people must hold private keys in the first place, and those people that hold the private keys, in theory, have a master key to see the whole network, rendering the security largely pointless, which is why you get with Zcash, you get these crazy ceremonies and creation myths in which 30 people in 30 different countries create a master key and burn it and throw it away. Um, The security is based on a myth rather than any actual security. ZK Starks is potentially both faster and doesn't rely on that. So it's it's considered really compelling for that reason. Uh, And it's interesting that they are selling that for tokens rather than uh, creating their own crypto. Yeah, definitely. I think there's, there's quite a lot of tokens out there at the moment. I like that they're building infrastructure to support the existing projects instead of coming up with their own project. And, you know, I also really like that they didn't issue an ICO and they're going this tech for tokens route. I think it's, you know, it feels a bit more altruistic and, you know, market supportive. I will profess that until you just gave us that overview, I 
do not understand um, <laughs> this technology. It sounds it's it's incredibly I technical. I don't profess to have done a particularly good job at it. I know, but it sounds good. Yeah. So the the guys at Zcash would probably do a far better explanation of it. Amber Balde would do a far better explanation of it. I, I have a best a layman's understanding, but it's uh, you can see why in theory in public permissionless blockchains in which every transaction is out in the open to have something that's shielded in some way, shielded transactions like Quorum have and others. This potentially solves a real problem around privacy. Uh, the, the challenge with Bitcoin always was it's relatively trivial to figure out who the underlying person is making the transactions from just two or three transactions. Yeah, I, th- I think the important point about stocks is that it reduces that attack vector of having the key, key exchange in the first place. Completely. All right. Um, so we wish them well. And uh, it seems like an interesting route. Um, not doing their own token, but cash for, uh, code for tokens. Let's, let's have more of this. That's your next T-shirt. That's my next T-shirt. Yeah, we'll code for tokens. Uh, yeah. I'm, I, I am a terrible, terrible coder. And, and I'm dyslexic, so I can't even spell the things. I'll give you some cotons then. But I still did three years in a telco writing code. So who knows? <laughs> uh, that tells you a lot about the telcos, right? All right, Forbes.com. When cryptocurrency goes green, not green with envy, but I think uh, green in terms of, uh, <laughs> of going green, blockchain can save the environment. So this comes from the Gear blockchain company, G-E-A-R. Founders have dedicated their company to the growth of global green energy production and environmental well-being. Our theme over the past few years has been from resources to regenerative, meaning that we want to take a dirty industry known for extracting things from the earth and innovate into something that could be used to give back to the earth and said, Ugh. Creating a self-sustaining project in the crypto blockchain space is the first step for encouraging further innovation. Okay, I mean, I get this. I mean, are they using proof of work? Because it doesn't really seem like that's particularly energy efficient. Well, so here's the thing. Do you need to be energy efficient or do you need to generate energy sustainably and without carbon? Because if if Europe's on track to have something like 30 to 40% of its energy generated renewably, and it's on track to have 50% by 2030 and, and 100% by 2050, then does it matter how I generate it? Does it? If it's not generating carbon, does it matter how much I use? I think that's a fair question, and I think it is something people miss. But still, like a lot of the people using proof of work have some relationship with some coal power plant somewhere, and it's not always great. But it is one of those common things that people throw at Bitcoin is like, oh, it's dirty. Oh, it's not very power efficient. But then neither is IBM. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, you've got the big tech companies that are that their data farms use far more energy than all the, you know, crypto mining combined globally today. What I'm mostly struck by is if we take a step back and look at the maturity of the crypto space, it is nascent, right? It is in its infancy. And to be self-aware enough to say this is a challenge um, straight out the gate where other industries and, you know, I won't poke fingers, but, you know, 50 years later, they're like, oh, oh, actually, we did some damage there. Sorry. So for a brand new industry to be looking at their impact um, this early on, I think that's very positive. Um, And there's plenty of projects that are emerging in Switzerland and Nordic countries and Russia that are not only looking at renewable, but how to reduce even that energy usage by, you know, just 
mining in colder places. There's something really interesting about the fact that the nature of all of these open source permissionless projects mean that so many people have monetized the growth in token values uh, to the point where they're now able to do their own projects. I think Ethereum estimates that there's something like 100,000 developers out there looking at this tech in some way, shape or form. And there's a famous Bill Gates quote that you know it's the developers that win any platform or whatever the developers choose is, is what's going to be what emerges. This kind of like uh, permissionless innovation thing is something that uh, whilst it's not really helpful in the very very short term for having a robust secure platform that i can use right now over the long term it does generate significant benefits Alrighty, stories we did not have time to cover. Uh, this one comes from bleepingcomputer.com. Wow, okay. Uh, apparently, a hacker steals $1.35 million from a cryptocurrency trading app called Taylor. I wonder why this one got in here. There's a link on Coindesk.com. Amid chaos, our decentralized future is being built. Quite a long read, but a good one. And a link from the BBC. Apparently, the China Mao impersonator at a blockchain conference causes a furore. That's a good read if you have the opportunity to get into it. Now it's time for Tweet of the Week. Tweet, 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 tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. All right, so Tweet of the Week comes from Jill Carson uh, at J-I-I... L. Ruth on Twitter. I'm not interested in recreating Wall Street systems around a new asset class. I'm interested in creating a new system around Wall Street's asset classes. Hashtag tokenized securities. Hashtag DEX is the future. Decentralized exchange is the future. Tina, do you have any thoughts on this one? I agree that uh, we are going to start to see more tokenized securities, and I would like to see a new system around Wall Street's asset classes. I completely agree with Jill that there is a huge correlation. So, you know, ICOs are another form of VC, you know. ICO scams are another form of, you know, boiler room penny stocks. So, you know, the podcast that she's referring to, she she also raises the correlation around the mortgage scandal um, and references uh, the big short. And I think my response to that is probably, you know, I see your big short and I call you on Wall Street where, you know, greed is good. So we can develop the tech to, you know, create a, a better future or simplify the, the systems that we have in place today. But people are people. So how are you going to solve for the people? If greed is still good, then we're going to continue to see some behavioral problems. Really great quote where I think the uh, Coindesk guys in the consensus conference just quoted Adam Smith, which was, you know, the classic, don't trust the altruism of the butcher or the candle maker or the uh, shoemaker that they enjoy making shoes trust their own self-interest they're going to make a good shoe because they're interested in getting money uh, and so that you know it does generate like a, a lot of growth and it works but it also creates challenges that's the nature of capitalism to a certain i don't degree. necessarily agree that decentralized exchanges are the future yeah. but that's my own personal well view. they create new attack surfaces they're interesting if nothing else but it, this idea that uh, creating a new system around wall street's asset classes is interesting because just how big the rest of the world of money is compared compared to crypto assets. Crypto assets are 400 billion. Maybe they rise 100x and they're still tiny. They raise 1,000x and they're still really, really small compared to all of the money in all of the world ever, which is what the rest of the financial system is doing, which is a far greater opportunity. And I think this speaks to a moment in time where people have gotten away from like, let's 
forget about crypto assets and tokenization of any sort and let's build our own DLT, uh, which was the story in Enterprise three, four years ago, which is we like the tech but not the currency stuff. Yeah. Now, actually, dealing in currency and settlement seems to be more taken seriously, Sarah. Uh, yeah, it is. It's, it's very interesting times. Um, I think my take on this, I guess, is that the first part of her sentence is very interesting. First part of her tweet, she's not interested in recreating Wall Street systems around a new asset class. And I think this speaks to a recurring theme that we're seeing people relearning lessons, reinventing the wheel, doing things that have already been done. And I think, you know, there's there's a great deal of intellect that's gone into building these mechanisms. And but the first thing you do if you approach something academically is do a literature review. And I don't feel that that's been done to, a, to the greatest extent. And these things are being reinvented. You should basically look at what's out there. And also the flip side of that is the opportunity presented to Wall Street and financial institutions. So we mentioned the syndicated loan market earlier, looking at tokenizing payments as being the way in which they're going to start to work just with the settlement leg of one transaction. But if you start talking about real estate and loan origination and all of these asset classes that are difficult to manage in today's economy – that's where I think a lot of financial institutions get much more excited. Yes, it's nice to deal with crypto, but what if we were to use that way of thinking to deal with asset classes that are non-traditional, the alternative asset classes, or even the listed market instruments? So if I'm looking at listed market instruments, if I'm looking at uh, alternatives or crypto assets, all three of those have opportunity. And all three of those, I think, are going to be big themes for the next foreseeable future. Alrighty, listeners, before we go, I just wanted to remind you that 11FS, the company that brings you this podcast, are a challenger agency who help banks, asset managers, FMIs, or anybody with a challenge in blockchain or DLT to achieve more. If you want to understand how to commercialize blockchain projects or even just understand what's going on or have a speaker for your next event, we hope you'll get in touch. You can hit up our website at 11FS.com to find out more. Sarah. Where can people find out more about you and Clearmatics? About me, you can tweet Clearmatics at Clearmatics or go to Clearmatics.com. If you want to tweet me specifically, you can tweet me at Seronimo. Or in fact, you can find me on stage at Money 2020 with Tina next week. Oh, gosh, isn't that exciting together again? Yes, indeed. And Tina, what about yourself? Where can people find out more about you and Coinfloor? At Coinfloor. Visit us at Coinfloor.com. Me personally, you can reach me on Twitter at, at Tina Taylor or at Coinfloor at, at Coinfloor. Thank you very much, Tina. All right, I have to thank our production team here uh, Laura, our producer, Terence, our editor, and assistant producer Petra. Thank you. Um, and with your GDPR special on Fintech Insider episode 220, do go check it out. Uh, Already, thank you for listening. Uh, if you like what you heard, um, subscribe to our podcast, leave us a review on iTunes. Those reviews help us so, so much. Spread the word, tell all your friends and colleagues to listen to. We'll have more Blockchain Insider next week. Goodbye. Bye.